Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series today, Make It Count, with a message entitled Effective Ministry. So turn in your Bibles to 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 to 7, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. How do you know you're effective at anything? And what I mean to say is that everyone, no matter what enterprise they are engaged in, at some point in time, asks the question, how am I doing? Am I a winner or am I losing? Am I making a difference or not? Would it matter if I kept doing what I'm doing or would anyone even notice if I were to simply walk away from this enterprise? Now, we might be talking about anything from how we're doing at university or trade school, how we're doing at work. How am I doing as a husband and a wife? How am I doing with my kids? How am I doing in my faith? That is, is it growing or is it stagnant or in retreat? How am I doing in my relationships with others? How am I doing at church, in my small group Bible study, in the area of ministry that I'm presently involved in? And the reason we ask is because there's something that's built into what it means to be human, to want to know how we're doing. No one is satisfied just showing up at a job and just doing the routine and never asking if this is making a difference. See, one of the reasons I favor assigning marks to students is because they have a right to know how they're doing and what they might do to increase their effectiveness. Because if we're never told at school, I mean, once we get out and start a business, you're going to soon find out how you're doing if you check your sales charts or the bottom line. You'll know how you're doing if if you're a farmer and your crops have failed and your neighbors are doing well. I mean, you'll know. Now, of course, I'm getting at something. How are you doing in your service to God? Is the Lord pleased with your ministry, no matter what it is? And here, let me speak personally. I've known a great many pastors who completely evaluate the effectiveness of their ministry by how many people are coming to the church they're leading. But is that the measure our Lord uses when he evaluates our service? Do you remember 1 Corinthians chapter 3? And I mean here, the portion of scripture where Paul speaks about those who build using gold, silver, or costly stones as their building materials, as opposed to those who use wood, hay, and straw. Do you also remember that when the fire comes and tests the quality of each person's work? I think Paul's saying that the things we do in the area of ministry that God assigns to us will in the end be evaluated to see if we've accomplished anything of lasting significance. So how are we doing? Now, in asking and answering this question, I think we're going to do well to study 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7, and then make application to our lives. And this text will help us answer the most important question of whether the Lord is pleased with the service you're performing before him. So let's read the entire text, 2 Timothy 2, 1-7. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Share in suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Now, as we've been studying 2 Timothy, we've noticed that this is Paul's farewell letter written to Timothy shortly before he's executed. Paul is aware that Timothy 
is the next generation of Christian leaders after him, and he wants Timothy to be effective. That's the context of this passage. I want us to notice that there are four images in this passage. The first is the image of the teacher. That's what we find in verse 2. Timothy will need to instruct the next generation. The second image is that of the soldier, and we find that in verses 3 and 4. The third image is that of the athlete, found in verse 5. And then finally, the fifth image is that of the farmer, that's found in verse 6. Now, in each of these images, the reader will have a clear referral to what indicates success. I mean, the teacher can look at the quality of his or her students. The soldier will quickly see if his efforts result in either victory or defeat in the battlefield. The athlete, especially the one in a race, is also judged on the basis of his or her performance, and the farmer is going to know by the abundance of the crops. See, it's tempting to outline this passage in terms of those four images. But if one looks at the passage more closely, you also find four commands. And I think that should form our outline. The first command is to be strengthened. The second is to be involved in entrusting the gospel to faithful men. The third is to share in suffering. And the fourth is to think over what Paul has just said. So I think in order to understand this text well, we should concentrate on the four commands we find here and then use those four images and apply those to our own lives. That's it. The four commands tell us that when we do them, God's pleased with our ministry. And the four images, well, those are illustrations that help us understand the commands better and to help us to see how we're doing. And so putting it into context, 2 Timothy 2, 1 to 7 are Paul's instructions to Timothy. After I'm gone, says Paul, I want you to make sure the deposit of the gospel that I've entrusted to you is both guarded and flourishing. And so in order to do that, here are four commands I want you to keep. Now, one more word, especially to the observant. You might notice there's a fifth command. It's in verse 8. The command is to remember Jesus Christ. But I'm leaving that fifth command to the next section, and I hope you bear with me until then. So let's look at the commands now. Command number one from verse one, be strengthened or be strong. It comes to us as a present passive imperative, which means that Timothy is to keep on being empowered by God. Notice also that the way in which he is to be strengthened is by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Now, please remember that grace is that which Christ gives to us apart from anything that we do or earn to deserve it. Keep leaning on the grace of Christ, says Paul. When you feel overwhelmed or defeated, or when you sense that you don't have the strength to go on, you'll need to be aware of grace coming from Jesus, and it will provide you with the strength that you need. And Paul's assuming something here. He's assuming that faithfulness to the gospel will demand a lifetime of strength. And we might think of 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 13, where Paul writes, As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. Or maybe Galatians 6, verse 9, Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. And here's a little secret. Almost anyone can do well for a brief season of time. It takes grace to do well for a lifetime. Show me a person who lives their lives in fits and starts with a litany of things that they've begun only to be abandoned later. I mean, that person hasn't been faithful. 
you remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 43? Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. So let me ask you the question. What has Christ assigned for you to do? If you do his command, you will find that there are a hundred reasons for becoming tired. You want to give up. Don't you do it. But you need to be strengthened if your obedience is to last for a lifetime, so you're going to have to rely on grace. So command one, be strengthened. Now command two, entrust the gospel to the next generation. Look again at verse two. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, Timothy is given a twofold task here. Not only is to be the pastor and shepherd and teacher and Christian leader who serves Christ in his generation, you know, that's the generation after the apostles have died, but that can't be his only task. He is to live his life and conduct his ministry with an eye to serving the generation that comes after him. Think of it, using Paul's first illustration, that of a teacher. The older I get, the more I'm aware that that life really is a very short adventure. And all of humanity knows that. I mean, think about all the knowledge that the human race has accumulated, let's say in medicine. If we're not constantly teaching, that is, if there are no universities whose sole duty is to take the accumulated knowledge of biology and medicine and infuse it into the next group of young people. Well, if they don't do that in short order, all that we have learned will be forgotten and all the old diseases and human ailments will be back without anyone knowing how to treat them. Trade schools, universities, technical institutes, and other centers of instruction are the very basis for the continuation of a society, whether for good or for ill. And says, Paul, not only am I dying and must pass the torch of the gospel to the leadership that you represent, Timothy. Timothy, recognize that your death also will come about more quickly than you thought, so it will be necessary that you be actively involved in the generation after you. Notice it's not just the next generation. Timothy is to entrust the gospel to faithful men, and then those faithful men will be able to teach others. So notice Paul's concern. He has the gospel. He trains Timothy, who trains another generation, and that generation trains a fourth generation. Four generations. That's how wide Paul's scope of concern is. Back to the Bible Canada has a global vision the size of our global mission. Partnerships around the world ensure that we do our part to sow God's word beyond the confines of country, culture, or language, and India is one example. Since 2017, in partnership with Back to the Bible India, Dr. John's messages have been broadcast in hard-to-reach regions across India, in fact, much of Asia. Three pastor conferences have taken place working together to train biblical leaders for the church in India. And thousands of Bible teaching resources have been translated and distributed to believers hungry for God's truth. And the sowing is bearing fruit. Sonu wrote to say, in my journey with Back to the Bible, I am blessed by the word of God. Now my whole family is serving the Lord. While February is our International Ministries Month, please consider a special gift to reach our $50,000 international ministry goal. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. 
Paul begins his command by speaking about what you have heard from me. No doubt Paul's referring to the foundational truths of the gospel, but no doubt he's also referring to the full slate of everything that he's been teaching Timothy. If you were to apply that fully to your life today, I would suggest every believer become well taught in the book of Romans. So why Romans? Because when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he had up to that time never been there. And furthermore, he writes the Romans both to introduce himself and his teaching to them, but also because he's interested in using the Roman church as a springboard for his campaign to bring the gospel to Spain. And so Paul writes Romans to familiarize that church with everything that he's been teaching. It's a summary. So Romans is the basics of everything that Paul taught everywhere he went. That's what Timothy heard. And so for us today, if we want to apply these things to our own lives, I think it necessary to make sure that every generation of believers knows the basic truths, deeply embeds them into the hearts of the next generation. They should know about their inherent sinfulness. They should know about the propitiary death of Jesus. They should understand justification by faith. They should understand Adamic sin. They should understand the peace of God. They should know how the old self was crucified with Christ. They should know the nature of their redemption. So you can see there's an important list of things they must understand and appropriate and then to make sure it's accurately taught. If we don't teach the next generation, people will be going to church, they will be unsaved, and they won't know about salvation. See, already we've seen two commands for effective ministry. First, be strengthened for long-enduring, faithful ministry by the grace of Jesus. Second, while you're doing that, make sure you're also engaged in ensuring that the generation that comes after you is grounded in the truth. Now, here's the third command, share in suffering. Now, on this note, let's take a little time trying to understand the word suffering. The word indicates that Timothy is to undergo the same type of suffering as others do. That is, he is to join with them or assume his share of the sufferings of others. It means that Paul simply assumes that faithfulness to the gospel will mean things like sacrifice, inconvenience, hardship, and of course, as is true in this letter, it might even mean that you run afoul of the authorities and therefore are put into prison. See, Paul's not specifying what kind of suffering he has in mind. He does not say that Timothy is going to be imprisoned alongside of Paul, although that might happen. But Paul does assume that hardship always goes together with the gospel. And it's here that Paul uses three illustrations. Let's look at each one in turn. The first illustration is that of a soldier. And at the outset, it takes very little imagination for us to agree that the life of a soldier can and often does involve suffering. And here, rather than telling us of the cost that's often paid on the field of battle, instead, Paul tells us of the soldier's entanglement in civilian affairs. See, a full-time soldier can't be involved in civilian affairs. I mean, for one, he has to train constantly, but he also has to be aware that when he receives orders, they have to be obeyed immediately, and he can't have entanglement in civilian affairs. All soldiers understand that obedience to the command of their commander, it supersedes everything else. It's going to be like that for Timothy. It's going to be like that for all of us. I mean, think about these matters practically. The demands of your calling, to love Christ, to serve him, those commands supersede all other commands, even the calling to love your family. 
You're a man or woman under orders, and the orders come from Jesus, your commander. That supersedes everything. The task to which you have been called demands your soul, your life, your all. When Christ calls, his call is not the beginning of a negotiation, nor is it a signal that you start to make plans to obey him at some unspecified time in the future. That's not how a military functions, and it can't function that way with Christ. Following Christ demands that our response to his command is always, Speak, Lord, for your servant hears and will obey no matter the cost. See, I'm amazed at how many young pastors today who, when hearing of a call to serve Christ somewhere, will tell me, no, no, I would never move far away from my home. So they set out geographical boundaries of where they might serve, and should they be called to serve far away, they assume that they have the right of refusal. That's not a soldier. You can't be a follower of Jesus unless you have the understanding of a soldier. Now, the second illustration is that of an athlete. And here you might think that Paul would use the athlete as an example of training. You know, the agony of waking up each morning and heading out to the gym and weight exercises and running and endurance training and carrying on in such a way that every cell in your body says, I just want to quit, but you keep on pushing through. Now, look, I know that that's the life of a professional athlete, but Paul has a different imagery in mind. Notice he says, no athlete is crowned unless he competes according to the rules. And at first glance, sounds strange. But let's consider what he's saying. The athlete must compete within the structures set out in his or her sport. So if you're a runner, well, you might have to stay in your lane. Uh, you can't begin until the gun sounds, so forth. In other sports, especially team sports, there are a whole set of rules that determine how that sport has to be played. So ignore the rules you're going to be penalized. Quite possibly, your entire team is going to lose. So let's make application. Think about what Timothy has been called upon to do. He's to preach the apostolic doctrine. That is, he's not permitted to preach on the kinds of things that might interest him. You know, in my own ministry, I was often amazed to hear other pastors wonder on what they should preach on. You know, someone would say, well, I've read a great book on spiritual solitude, and I'm going to start preaching on that. Another says, you know, I've been thinking about the Christian response to environmentalism or politics. I'm going to preach on that. I once had a preacher tell me, I'm a pop psychology preacher. That's my emphasis. To this, listen to the rules. You don't get a choice as to what you preach. You are to preach the word. Pay attention to the text in front of you. Explain it line by line, verse by verse. Help people to understand it and to apply it to their lives. Those are the rules. Well, that's true of preaching, but it's also true of all ministry we do. Whether we're teaching the next generation in Sunday school or youth, or we're involved in counseling the hurting or the fallen, or reaching out to others with the saving news, the rules, God's word, his directives, his commands, his truths, you can't ignore that. You must compete according to the truths of Scripture, and if you don't, no matter how well you think you're doing, the referee, our Lord and Savior, has blown the whistle and said, you're offside, and if you persist, you lose the race. See, the reason why Paul puts it under a heading of suffering is because every faithful servant of God must say, not my will but thine be done. And if you can't do that, you can't win. And if you've not submitted your will to God's will, you probably don't understand how hard submission is. It demands suffering. It must be that way. 
Well, the final illustration Paul gives is that of a hardworking farmer. And if, if you're a farmer and it's planting season, or harvesting season, you know you can't just work an eight-hour day and say, I've put in my time. Indeed, all farmers will tell you that you do what needs to be done, regardless of how hard or how long it takes. If you're taken to laziness or you're a sluggard who says, maybe I'll get around to this sometime in the future, well, you're not going to be a farmer very long. I grew up on a dairy farm. I remember at times, especially at harvest, I wanted to be out with my friends, and I learned a very valuable lesson from my dad. The work on the farm would have to be complete first, regardless of the other things I wanted to do. Sacrifice was required. Same's true in ministry. What are the demands that must be attended to? Attend to them. If the gospel must be preached, if the lost must be converted, if the hurting must be healed, if the erring must be corrected, then it must be done. And then in this illustration, Paul adds a phrase. It says, the hardworking farmer should have the first share of the crops. That is, the first blessings of the labor falls on him. His reward is immediate. That's so important, lest we grow weary in serving. Keep remembering that the farmer has the greatest reward. So also, those who labor in the Lord's service are greatly rewarded. You know, Paul has told us of being strengthened, of making sure the next generation is prepared about sharing whatever sufferings are required. Then he adds one further command. Think over what I say. You'll need to spend some time both in understanding this and in making application. And then Paul adds a promise. The Lord will give you understanding in everything. He assumes that Timothy is praying over these matters, and he knows that the Holy Spirit will give him insight. I'm sure that was not only true of Timothy, it's also true of us. If you want to be effective in ministry, if you want not to be futile, this is what you must do, this is what you must obey. May the Lord grant us mercy to do exactly those things. John, thanks for your message. You know, I think we'd all agree that the Lord calls us to serve, all of us to serve, but do we get to decide what that service would look like? You know, often we just simply don't. Um, and there are some people, Ben, and, and you and I know them, who have gifts that differ from their own desires. But, you know, God gives us his gifts, and uh, let's use them in a way that uh, serves best, and let's do it to his glory, and let's never complain, but let's give grateful thanks to God. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Make It Count, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Hi, this is Ben Lowell from Back to the Bible Canada. We believe Bible teaching is critical for God's people, and your support is critical in making the daily Bible teaching program with Dr. Newfeld available on this station. But we know there's times when you may miss the radio program, so we want to remind you of all the opportunities available for free for your use and convenience. At backtothebible.ca, you can search through a library of messages and series, both audio and video with Dr. John, but also learn more about our ministry podcasts, YouTube channels, mobile applications, and print resources. Our desire is to serve you so that the Bible teaching you can trust is available to as many people in as many ways as possible. For more information or to support this Bible teaching ministry, Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.
www.thepeopleshow.ca.